0: I'm Jason Comstock and welcome to We Happy Few. The podcast that allows veterans and their families to tell their stories.
1: I'm Dan Paget. I was uh, in the army in the early 90s. Uh, I served in Germany. Uh, Fort Hood, Texas. Uh, The reason why I joined the Army is sort of an interesting story. Most people join now duty to country and all that other stuff. But I was uh, sitting in printing class in high school and I was talking to a gentleman, a kid named Chris Keller. And we were talking about our futures as we were printing the school newspaper. And Chris uh, was telling me you know he wasn't going to make it into college he had no money he was poor he grew up in a trailer court well i was poor growing up in a trailer court so we were talking about that and uh he said well i was going to join the army get the college money and i was like the army gives you money and i was like huh so i thought about it and uh when i was in the youth I got in some juvenile problems. Um, When I was young, I stole a car and took it on a joyride. And my sentence was that I had to work where I had to be babysat until I was 18. I had to be supervised in my free time. And the judge thought it was nice that I could work. But the work really messed up my uh, schooling. So I got decent grades, mostly B's. But that year, sophomore year, I was in college college algebra and I was getting D's and, but I was also working at a tuxedo place and we were working till 11 at night and my mom worked two jobs. So she didn't know that I wasn't coming home until 11 at night and that I wasn't really studying. So that's where it killed all my abilities to get a scholarship. So I was there thinking and in high school, I wasn't, uh, I would say good citizen. Um, I, sold a lot of alcohol to a lot of people. If there's any Utah state legislature, uh, underage drinking, your laws don't do much because there's always somebody like me in high school who's going to sell it to them. Um, I had easy al- access to alcohol. I was drinking. I was doing a lot of bad things at night, running around with a bunch of bad people, but they were good friends. Um, So as I was there... That didn't really come into play when I thought about joining the Army. But the idea of getting out, changing my environment, um, doing something, because I'd been working since the age of 12 nonstop, every summer, every after school every day. And and when I was young, I had to work for the JTPA, which was Job Training Program Act. So you're cleaning high schools mowing lawns, doing just a bunch of crap jobs, right? So anything's better than doing crap jobs as a high school kid. Um, so so Chris and I met with uh, the recruiter, and there's another guy named Dusty Thorsten, who actually he was interesting too, but we all sort of went through joined the Army together. Um, we, so Chris got me to sign up, which you know, as a delayed entry, we, I was a dep. But uh, Thorston was an eagle scout, so he got his first promotion.
2: Was there a reason you chose the army?
1: Um, you know, my so I come from a history um, of military people. So my great grandfather served in World War One in the army. Both of my grandfather served in uh, World War Two. Uh, my grandfather, my grandpa Fagan, he was wounded in World War Two. My dad served in Vietnam. I'm actually named after a Medal of Honor awardee, Danny Peterson. Um, So it was sort of the Army or nothing, right? So uh, it was... There was no sense of duty, like I need to follow my grandfathers or my father. It was... The Army was interesting. As a youth, played Army. Everything was Army. My dad's medals, everything was Army, right? So I chose the Army... Uh, the reason why I chose tanks or as armor crew member, <clears throat> I actually scored really high on the ASVAB. I got 118 out of 121. I qualified for almost every job in the military. And when I was there and there, they'd show you put in a VHS tape and you'd watch a video and they're like, man, you should really go in communications or you should be an Apache repair person or you should do all these cool high-tech jobs and I was like do you have anything where you shoot something and they showed me the infantry video and I was like uh you know a lot of hiking I was like do you have anything else (laughs) and they're like well there's armor but you're you're a little too smart to go in armor and infantry and I'm like uh let's see it and he starts with these tanks jumping shooting ship blowing up everywhere I'm like that's what I want to do so as a 16 year old That's what I chose. When I got out and I had job offers from contracting companies and you had the communication guys who were getting job offers from like AT&T and those places that were like 80,000, I'm like getting offered 20,000 to drive a Caterpillar. It was probably the bad decision that way, but I wouldn't change it all. Armor, I love armor. I'm proud to be a tanker. I live, breathe tanking still today and it's what I really enjoy.
2: So there's, but there is something special. I mean, I think there's probably a lot of these types of inner units inside of each military job. But uh, the tank guys are uh, there's the specific breed. what is it about that job or that mindset?
1: And there's definitely a heritage too, right? Yeah, we uh, we take pride. Like I was in the 70th Armor uh, in uh, Germany, but I think tanking comes down to you have your crew. And there's nothing more important than your crew. So you rely upon four members to make this tank work. Your driver, your gunner, your loader, your tank commander. And, uh, I mean, that brotherhood's like, I'm closer to my tank family than I probably am my own family. Um, But uh, it's it's a pride. It's tradition. It's knowing, like, the 70th armor is the most decorated armor battalion in the U.S. history of the U.S. armor. Um, And we knew that. We took pride in that. Uh, After Desert Storm, uh, you know, the 70th and 470th armor, you know, they fought at the Battle of Medina Ridge, which was the largest tank battle in the history of the U.S. 470 in seconds, 470 and. 270th armor, I mean, they wiped out a brigade of the Medina Ridge or the Medina Republican Guard in 45 minutes, which was unheard of. Um, So it's that pride. And even when we trained, like in Germany, Germany was interesting. We trained hard. No matter what, we trained hard. The Cold War was over. There was nothing going on. But we trained. We held standards. In fact, I think that's what's helped my life so much is the standards that I learned while I was in Germany.
2: What years were you in the military
1: in uh, Germany? I was in Germany from 92 to 94.
0: So can we go back? So you're 16 when you signed a delayed entry. Right. So tell us about basic training
1: that first time. <laughs> oh, that was a shock. <laughs> <laughs> So I went in as 17, so I was still young, uh, you know, white guy from Utah, grown up in Bountiful, you know, all suddenly you're the youngest guy pretty much in the reception. You show up in reception, you have, you know, you have your 19 deltas, your 19 kilos, um, going in processing and it's just, it's a culture shock, um.
0: You know, it, reception is such a nice word for it, too.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, the, uh, you know, the first time you had to use the bathroom. These are the old style World War II barracks, right? And you go in and there's uh, toilets in there in a square and there's no separation. And everybody's just sitting there doing their thing, you know, talking. And it's like 17 i had to poop in public shower with all these guys right it's like nothing you've experienced nothing Mm -hmm. here that can prep you for that and it was weird like uh the first night we got there we uh they put us in this room to give us our whole blanket our sheets right so we could go sleep and There's an old drill sergeant, and if you ever saw Stripes, uh, Stripes was filmed there. And uh, Sergeant Hookah, there's a guy, and there's a drill sergeant who looked just like Sergeant Hookah. (laughs) And uh, he was like, he called us in this room, and it's Kentucky, it's summer, it's hot, miserable, humid, right? And he's there, and he's all like, why did you guys join the Army? And the first guy's like, nothing's going on. You know, the Cold War's over. There's nothing. Why are you guys really joining? And and then pretty much 95% of us all said college money. And there's about 5% who were sentenced there by judges. (laughs) (laughs) But it was interesting. I mean, even there, you start to interact, deal with people from different backgrounds, different cultures. You start to appreciate them. You start to understand that what you see on TV is not real. What you see um, interacting with people it's different, right? Everybody's different. And what I found is everybody wants the same thing. doesn't matter your race, your color, your age. Everybody wants to just do better in life, provide for themselves and their families, right? And they're doing what they're best to be able to achieve that. So that was interesting.
2: What was it like being in Germany in the 90s? I mean, the wall had fallen a year, a couple of years earlier.
1: It was uh, interesting. It was it was good. I mean, we trained really hard. The professionalism of the Army and the armor Corps in Germany was very, I mean, we trained hard, we drank hard was the sort of the motto. Um, it was my platoon sergeant and my tank commander, uh, he really sort of set the bar for our platoon. In fact, our officers, our NCOs of that company, there was no better, finer officers or NCOs. Uh, I served in other companies and they were never that good. Um, but those guys took, um, professionalism to a new standard. Um, high standards. I mean, being the Sergeant Williams driver and gunner <coughs> and loader that took a, that took a toll because he had had the cleanest tank. It had to be the best tank. We had to shoot highest in gunnery. We had to be the best of the best. And, When you're sort of in it, you sort of learn to, it's got to get done, just go in and do it. But things that we did, like, you know, when we stopped in alfalfas when we are out in the field, and we'd, like, do the little things, walk the track, fix the pads, the track ends, all that, check the track tension, you know. And the thing is, we never threw track, which is a big accomplishment. A lot of tank crews don't do that because... Usually you get four hours of sleep when you're in the field, and those four hours are dedicated to the uh, driver and the tank commander. They're, they have to have four inter- hours of interrupted sleep. So usually uh, the loaders do guard, LPOP, uh, and the gunners usually are on radio watch because you always have somebody on radio watch. So at night, usually you don't get much sleep. But loader would get maybe two hours, three hours of sleep, but their sleep came as soon as you hit the alpha alpha, the assembly area. You would walk your track, check your engine oil, uh, make sure everything was good on the tank. And then usually the you would crash out somewhere on the back deck. But a lot of tank crews, they would just go crash out, and they wouldn't take care of their tank. We always walked our track. We always did the little things. And it's those little things I've learned that make you successful in life, right? If you pay attention to the little details, you do the little details, you embrace the suck of them, you just do it, right? So that helps you grow. And Sergeant Williams really taught us suck because, like, <laughs> we had come in after a field problem, you know, you clean your tank for inspection. But, like, most people would just clean their tools. We had to repaint our turret. We had to repaint our turret floor, our subfloor, all of our tools. I mean, we were the best of the best. And he insisted on that. And it was interesting because, like, uh, the ambassador for the U.S. to Germany came and visited our small post. Erl- I was in Erlang, and it was a small post. We had a, just a brigade there. But the tank that got to meet the ambassador, the tank he got to go on, was us, right? So it was pretty interesting. And uh, we got to shoot gunnery a couple of times on Behalf of the 3rd ID, trying to be the best tank crew of gunnery and things like that. So it paid off in the end. But mostly it's paid off in my per, in my career afterwards. Because if you outwork people, it doesn't matter your education. If you can outwork them, you'll get promoted. And that's one of the things I've learned from the Army.
2: So did you spend the bulk of your time in the Army in Germany?
1: No, I split okay. time. So in 94, the Germany downsized. Mm-hmm. In uh, or the army downsized their posts in uh, Germany, so they. I still had two years left, so I went to Fort Hood, Texas, and Fort Hood's an interesting place.
2: <laughs> so, w- was there any um, consideration, or did the imp- the first Persian Gulf War was in 1991, right? In, I think it was in January. Um, yeah, January, uh, February. Um, did that have any impact on you guys? Did
1: you um, you know, in Germany, it just taught us to train harder. You know, we had a lot of Desert Storm veterans. Uh, our unit was all together. Most of them all fought at the Battle of Medina Ridge and the other battles. We took those lessons. Um, it, we really it added to the intensity of our training. Uh, I, I think um, that was the one thing the German Army, the Army in Germany, I should say, not the German Army, but they are very professional it was like two different armies you had the army that occupied and worked in germany and then you had the army of the u.s is what i called it which was very different um you know in germany everything was uh you work hard play hard everybody was family oriented crews companies everything Mm -hmm. everything evolved around your tank company which was good. And you were on a brigade, so it was a small post, intimate post. There was one battalion of infantry, one battalion of uh, combat engineers, one battalion of armor, right? Mm-hmm. So not that many. So it was an intimate sort of thing, right? But we knew that we were training for something always. When you got to Fort Hood, or when I got to Fort Hood, it it was different. You had two large divisions there. Not very intimate. You sort of had your section of the post that you hung out on, where you operated on. You went to the motor pool. Germany, we seemed to be in the field a ton. Or if you weren't in the field, you were going to Graf to do a SimNet or some other type of training at Graf Veer. Um We took our like uh, our rotation to Holensfelds, the CMTC, very serious. Fort Hood, it was like, oh, we're going to the field for two weeks. Oh, we're shooting gunnery. Oh... There wasn't a lot. But one thing I noticed was training accidents. So, and they probably occurred within, they always happen, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, in uh, in Germany, in our battalion, I don't recall any major training accidents. You always had people who got hurt. But at uh, Fort Hood, my first gunnery that we uh, shot uh, there, I had only been... Oh, there for maybe a month. So I apologize. I don't know the gentleman's name. Uh, but, uh, it was a senior NCO tank commander who was standing between two tanks, which you never do. And, uh, so we were doing gunnery. Um, he didn't hear the loader or not the loader, the driver called clear to the rear. The tank started, it jumped, it smashed him, killed him instantly. Right. Um, so it was like that you, uh, You sort of like had to deal with the death, but you still had to shoot gunnery, which was interesting. Um, I was only in a tank company. Uh, I was with Bravo Company 2A Cav just for a short time. I was out, and that was the other thing. You shammed a lot at Fort Hood. You can get away with shamming like no other at Fort Hood. So one day I was shamming, supposed to be in the motor pool, wasn't. And I was, I was at the bar drinking. But uh, a major came in, and uh, it was my old company commander. And he's like, hey, what are you doing here? And I'm like, Uh, oh, just killing time. And he's like, Uh, oh, who are you assigned to? And I'm like, 2-8 cab. He's like, oh, that's in my brigade. He's like, aren't you supposed to be in the motor pole? I said, yeah, I'm just shaman's, sir. You know how it is. And uh, he was a good guy. And he's like, well, I need a driver. And I was like, I'm not interested. I like what I'm doing, Right. So he went back and he actually told the brigade S1 that he wanted me to be his driver. And when I went back to formation that night, they called out my name and said, "Hey, you need to stay after." And I'm like, "I don't know." And he's like, "You got to go report to First Brigade. You're going to be assigned to the S3." And he's like, "You got to pack your room, you got to move barracks, and you got to be report to their first sergeant later today." And I'm like, Heard in the morning, I'm like, what the f-? you know, and yeah. <laughs> just like, so I showed up, but that was an interesting change to what I experienced because you have the family of the crew, family of the tanks, and now you're in an S shop, which is all, and in brigade, it's all captains, majors, colonels, lieutenant colonels, but it was, and my, uh, major kid, well, he only was there for like two, three more months before he was sent to the war college but the new S-3 that came in was uh, Major Brooks, uh, Vincent K. Brooks. He ended up being a four-star general, just retired uh, with commander of Korea, commander of a lot of things. And he was the brigade S-3. And uh, he needed a guy to do, be a clerk driver. So I, I knew how to use a computer, which at that time, not very many people knew how to use a computer or a word processing or a PowerPoint. Uh, I swear, sort I of figured it out. It wasn't that hard, right? So... I was his clerk, Um, and that's sort of weird because you're sharing an office with a sergeant major at a desk. You're at a desk. The major's in the thing. Anytime sergeant major gets pissed off, you're, like, being punished for it. You have another sergeant major upstairs who just likes to screw. And he was my sergeant major in uh, Erlangen, and he knew I was from Erlangen. So he would come down and screw with me all the time. So it was pretty interesting. But it was interesting to see how officers worked and how officers trained officers. And you're sort of a fly on the wall who gets to see that. And the smartest man I've ever met in my life was Major Brooks. He is just intelligent. I think he was the first uh, leader of the cadets of West Point. But he always was telling, you spend a lot of time with him, so he's always like, you need to study, you need to read, you need to expand your mind, you need to get out of your comfort zone. You need to talk with other people that aren't of your culture, your race understand their backgrounds, understand this, always be improving. And he's always like, and when you're a sergeant or when you're leading men at tank companies, always like make sure you're inspiring your men, making sure they're taken care of. And his leadership was just in, impeccable. And the the uh, brigade commander at that time was Colonel uh, David McCarran, who actually was a four-star general too. So there's four, four, two four-star generals eventually. I was leading that brigade, and it was, it was just very interesting because Colonel McKeown was a great leader. We had a Lieutenant Colonel Anderson, who ended up being a general too. He was a great leader. I like Colonel. An- I liked them all. Colonel Anderson was pretty interesting. He would interact with the enlisted men because he knew we were just there's too many chiefs and only a few engines, right? In a S shop brigade, S shop. So he would interact. But they would always teach us things, interact with us. It was a very interesting time being there. But also, being the S3, whenever there was a training accident, we had to take the major out to a training accident. So we'd see a lot of accidents. Maybe that's where I'm tainted of U.S., Germany Army was better training, better careful than the Fort Hood Army, but you never know, right?
0: I think this is a great time to take a break and hear from the businesses that are making this podcast possible. If you support us and what we are doing, please support them.
2: Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson.
0: And I'm Jason Lee.
2: Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches. Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views. That's Voices of Reason on the KSL Radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts. So when did you get out?
1: I got out in 95. Okay. So
2: you did, was it six years or four years? Four. Four years. Um, And you got out and you said you had some job offers, but at that point, did you contemplate what your life would have been like if you hadn't joined the military or was that later? Uh,
1: It was sort of later in life, but... uh,
2: Was it hard going back to being a civilian full-time?
1: It was a little bit. um, It was weird not having your day structured, right? and being on call all the time because when you're a driver you're always on call you couldn't drink as much as everybody else it sort of ruined your time in life but uh it uh it, it was interesting because when i got out um they had offered for me to go to west point so david uh, J- colonel mcieran uh, it was Major Dragon at that time. Major Brooks had been uh, promoted to lieutenant colonel, and he was commanded 2-5. They had got a possible appointment to me to go to West Point Prep School and then eventually go on to West Point, and I turned that down. Probably the worst decision of my life because I had already been accepted into the University of Utah on the Green to Gold program. So I was going to go the ROTC way to become an officer, and, uh, that didn't last but one quarter because you can't deal with ROTC people who are just playing like they're in the army, acting like they're in the army and you're just going. And so I sort of dropped out of that. But, uh, at that time I was living with a bunch of my high school friends, um, right below the U. I was going to school, they were being janitors at the Marriott library right. and, uh, for, first couple of months, it was okay. But by about November of the first term, like we had parties there nonstop every day The drug use was starting to come really high. And I was like, ah, this is messed up, right? I'm like, this is not what I want. This is not what I want in my life. So I actually moved out, moved on, had a job, got a career. But you know, that was sort of the part that I said, you know. This is the army has taught me something, right? About taking pride in myself, having some type of ambition, um, accomplishing something at that time. And it actually was the decision that probably saved my life because of those oh, four roommates that I lived with, three of them died of uh, drug overdoses. Uh, the other one's been in and out of prison nonstop ever since that time. And I'm sure. I haven't talked to him in about 10 years. He might be dead. Who knows? But it's one of that you sort of look at, if I would have not have joined the military, I would have still been with those four guys. I would have still probably got into the drugs because I had no direction. I had nobody to point me, no no real um, father figure to say, you're doing wrong, right? Because I lived with my mom. She worked two jobs. I did whatever I wanted, right? So there was real no parental influence that was saying, don't do this, right?
2: Did you not have any relationship with your dad?
1: Uh, I had an off and on relationship with my dad. Um, He was like my hero when I was a kid, right? And then when they got divorced, it was like, uh, I sort of not felt worth anymore when I was with him because you would go like, see, we lived in Beaver and you go to like Cedar City and you know, with the stepkids and my brother lived with him and they're all getting nice things and stuff. And you're like, Hey dad, can I get this? And he's like, ask your mother, she has all my money. And it's like, Oh, and I got told that many a times. So I sort of realized my worth to him at that time. And he probably would argue that, but from my perspective, that was the perspective. So we didn't have the greatest relationship. And my dad, you know, he suffered from PTSD which he finally went and got uh diagnosed with a few years ago. Um but um so it was sort of an abusive relation, you know. There was no like sparing of the rod type thing and some of those beatings were pretty bad. So those sort of live with you too, you know. So it it wasn't the best relationship. In fact, it Through the years, it hasn't really been the best relationship. But we have, probably in the last 10 years, gotten closer. But the only thing that really brought us closer is my military service, his military service, something common we can talk about. And... uh,
2: Did your military experience give you any insight into him and why he might, why the PTSD might have been at least partially...
1: Oh, yeah. I mean... I think anybody who serves in the military, and I think this is where the military gets PTSD and mental health issues wrong, is that they should send everybody who serves to a counselor at least once a quarter to talk, to work out your issues. I mean, I know in basic training we had Murray. He tried to take his life just in basic training. Um, or we went to OSET training, but still. Um, in Germany we had... Oh, S he was Puerto Rican Esperanto or something like that. He took his life. Um, so I mean, it's pressure and, uh, there, when I was in Fort Hood, Texas, there is a guy, Oh, what was his name? Oh, prof or McGill or something. He was sort of in a different section. We didn't really operate outside of our sections, but, uh, like he walked to a 50 caliber range because he could hear 50 calibers and he walked out in the targets trying to become a human target, right? To be taken out that way. So, and this is peacetime, right? And you see a lot of messed up things like, um, there's one training accident. I went to, we we're actually just there to observe, uh, the live fire and two five calf was shooting and I was just hanging out. Right. That's what drivers do. Right. And, uh, there was a kid who they needed new, more 20 mm rounds broken down. Right. And he was fresh out basic and, uh, he went and did it and he didn't have his Kevlar on his, his, uh, vest. And, uh, when he was breaking it down, he hit a bullet or, and it went off and it blew off his bottom part of his face. Um, I was the closest guy there, and I had a medic bag, all that. I ran, and, I mean, it's just easy, right? So you try to do first aid, right? And at that time, you just know you need to call for a med- medevac, which range control still didn't know there was a... So I just went to the Humvee, called for a medevac, and then I got in track... <laughs> A lot of people are like, why the hell are you calling for a medevac? And I'm like, "Uh, we have a soldier down and all this. And so they got him. They moved him. But it's like one of those things. It's something that just happens. You witness it. um, Something you have to deal with. Um, You know, the guy getting smashed, you you have to deal with that. So I think it gives you a perspective of when you see people killed in training or hurt in bad, It's like that guy survived. I don't know how they fixed that, but, um, it, it screws with you, right? It screws with you mentally. And there was no, there, you know, at that time, if you went to mental health, that was the end of your career, right? Even if you were referred there for alcohol, it was, you were done with in the military. So there's not an incentive, and I know that still mentality has to exist there, you know, somewhat. I know there's a lot of officers who who are trying to change that, and the Army's trying to change that, but I think it should just be a mandatory thing. And then it's just everybody's going, everybody's talking, and you don't know what you're talking about, right? And I think that would help a lot with a soldier suicide. But I also think for veterans, too, it should be that way as well. That you should have a once a year checkup to go to the VA, talk to a mental health professional just to get you checked out because it creeps up on you, right? And even though you're a peacetime veteran, a wartime veteran, you're a veteran and you've probably seen something. And
0: so would you so with that knowledge, would you encourage any of your family members or children to join the military?
1: Oh no. <laughs> no. I'm anti join in the military. In fact, I tell my son, like, I just barely hung up my medals. I don't want to romanticize the military, the army, because for me, it was the right decision. It helped me, um, with my life. Cause I know if I would not join the military, I wouldn't have the job I have. I wouldn't be, have the family I have. I wouldn't have a great kid, two kids. Um, And, uh, it really changed my life. But with that, you know, I have not PTSD, they call it, um, your antisocial in your, um, hate people. There's a word for it. I never, I don't know how to pronounce it, but, uh, so, you know, it's one of those things and I suffer from, and that's sort of some PTSD symptoms of, um, quick to anger, quick to, but you know, my kids miss out on a lot of things, um, that, uh, we don't get invited to family parties. Uh, my family doesn't really come out, see me, right. Uh, because you know, I'm in a close setting. I'm fine. I'm good. But you put me in with more than 20 people and I'm not comfortable with them. I I will either sit in the corner, not do anything, And it's not worth dealing with me, right?
2: Do any of the groups that you're involved with, uh, like the Team RWB, do any... Does that help? Or does that just exacerbate this?
1: No, I think Team uh, RWB was great. Um, If my kids were not so young and did not had so many activities Saturday morning, I'd still be running, right? Or walking. I never ran. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know... That sort of took me out of that, but it was great to associate with veterans. Um, I also hire a lot of veterans. Um, that's one thing that helps as well. I think veterans interacting with veterans is a good thing. In fact, uh, when I went to VA back in like t- 2003, three four, I was really suicidal at that time. Just went, and, you know, that's when they sort of told me, you know— You should talk about your experiences, talk about things, and just talk about uh, and interact with other veterans. And it would probably help or leave a lot of that. And it does. Like, I get along great with uh, other veterans. Um, It's fun to interact with them. It's fun to tell stories. You know, we all have great stories. And uh, we've all experienced a bunch of different things. And it's always fun and interesting to hear that if
2: you had to sum up you, you know you said you've kind of become anti-military but you know there are positives and there are people that it it is and we need a robust you know uh, capable military so sort of if you were in charge for a day um give me just a couple things that you think you would do to suggestions you might offer
1: to the military, I, I, yeah,
2: and I like the idea of everybody that counseling is mandatory. Right. just like you have to pass a PT test, you have to go in and like have a not a not a psychiatric test, but you have to like be checking in with somebody who's going to say, "Hey, you're not really acknowledging some issues that you're dealing with."
1: Right. So I'm, to sort of clear one thing: I'm not yeah. anti-army or yeah. anti-military. Yeah. I just don't want my children to go through it and <laughs> come back with the mental issues that like my dad has, I have. I feel my grandfather's somewhat had that too because we always went camping on the 4th of July because his fireworks, he didn't like fireworks.
2: So is there any way to avoid breaking? Because I think, feel that way about my nephew. I don't want to see him get shattered like my dad was.
1: Right. No, I, I think the Army, you know, they got to take mental health issues serious. Uh, I know people are, like my generation of veterans you know we say you know they're soft they're weak you know they're they're not right i had a cousin who did two tours in iraq and he uh was infantry was a sniper uh ranger all that was very gunco um but i think more awareness or i you know you look at murray it was stress right and not a way to alleviate your stress you look at the other suicides, it was the same thing. It was the constant stress, not a good release of how to release that stress. And maybe, I don't know, maybe they're doing it, but I think you got to address with people on how to deal with high-stress situations. I mean, they always say keep your military bearing. I mean, it annoys people that I work with because I never get excited. I'm very monotone one way, right? And some people are like, how can you not get angry emotional I'm like I just know how to deal with stress but I think there's a lot of kids who have never had to face that type of stress and I don't like they never taught me how to deal with stress so I drank my buddies drank I mean you look at the people I served with in Germany we've all been married multiple times divorced multiple times um you know a lot of us probably had alcohol problems in the military. I would say I did. I drank more than anybody should. So did most of my buddies, right? So I don't think that was our way of relieving stress, especially in Germany. I mean, you're on a post. Um, when you get off, the German economy is closed. So the only thing that's open are the bars, right, or the guest house. So you're going to bars, right, at night. Um yeah, Saturday, Sunday, you could go do sightseeing, but that usually involved, like, drinking. Like, we go to the market plots, get pig sausages, <laughs> come back to the barracks, barbecue them, and drink, right? Um, there was nobody tells us not to. There was nobody watching or monitoring our alcohol intake, which I don't know if that needs to be done, but nobody was telling us how to deal with our stresses. Mm-hmm. Nobody was teaching us how to be mentally healthy, and we have, in Germany, you had like people like the group I sort of hung out with. We'd go off post. We had German friends. We'd go do things with them. And it was fun. It swore it of was a nice relief to get away from the military. But we had what we called barracks rats. They were the guys who were, the. it's bad, but they're sort of the rednecks of the army, some of them. And I don't want to stereotype them, but they're the ones who... Germany sucks, the Germans suck, great, we beat them in World War II, you know, screw Germans. And they would never leave the barracks or the post. They never went outside and experienced Germany, experienced the culture, experienced the great people. And those guys, I mean, they just drink nonstop, right? They go in. So I don't know... I guess that's a long answer to let's deal with see how people deal with stress. I think that's true of Fort Hood. It's a crappy place to be stationed. It's middle of nowhere Texas. Clean Texas sucks. Copper's Cove sucks. And if you don't have a car, you're stuck in those areas. I luckily had a car, and I could go at least to Austin or Waco or San Antonio for a weekend and get away from it all. But there are soldiers who never leave that post who... That's their life and it's a crappy life, right?
0: If you or any veteran you know is feeling self-destructive or suicidal, please don't hesitate to use the Veterans Crisis Line by either calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1 or by texting 838-255 or by visiting www.veteranscrisisline.net. This 24-7 confidential service is for all veterans, all service members, the National Guard and Reserve, their family members, and their friends. Join us again for the next episode of We Happy Few. If you have comments about the show, please contact us by email at tips at loudmouthproject.com or on Twitter at loudmouthjason. Check out our website at loudmouthproject.com and navigate to the We Happy Few page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcasts, iTunes, and other places where you find interesting shows. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps grow our audience. We would like to thank our producer and editor, Josh Tilton, and our creative director, Amy Donaldson, for adding the spit and polish to our show. I'm Jason Comstock, and until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and stay engaged. We Happy Few is a production of the Loudmouth Project.